Really glad to have you today. We're starting a new series of messages today. We're calling Open Our Lives to People in Need. I told my wife last night what we were doing this Sunday, and she said, really, the Sunday after Easter, you're going to do that? And we are. Today, we're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah. You know, God is upset, and he's speaking through Isaiah, so he's got a little bit of a punch for us this morning, but I think it's a message that we need to hear. It really is a message I think is catered to, it's designed for, it might have even been written for American suburbanites. So I'm going to read this morning Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and I'd love for you to look along. If you have a Bible on your phone or if you uh, brought a paper Bible, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, the words are going to be on the screen. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking to God's people. Now that's important. So he really is, I believe, speaking to us. And if you would, just to make things really confusing, let's do some spiritual aerobics and stand out of reverence for God's word. Let's go old school. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash them and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You may be seated. Let's watch this. What's up with your box? That's not right. Oh, well, how long has it been here? Since before I got here. I don't know. It's not my, it's not my problem. Well, what is it? It's a problem. Oh, problem. Right. Well, should I look it? Back yourself out. Uh, but you might want to think about that. Oh, why? Well, like I said, that's a problem. Well, whose problem is it? I don't know. It was here before I got here. Wait, so you don't know whose it is? No, and honestly, I don't really care. I've got more important things to do. Yeah, well, somebody has to care. I mean, you can't just stay here forever. It's gotta be someone's problem. Why? Why does that be someone's problem? Don't look at it. Pretend it's not even there. Hey. <laughs> there is no problem. What? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, wait, so what you're saying is so, Father, I pray this morning that 
you would stir in our hearts uh, to make it our problem. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, imagine if I uh, stood here this morning and said, hey, thanks for coming to Gateway. By the way, I want you to know that you are sons of ISIS. And your attendance today and all of your religion over the last few years, by the way, are an offense to God. He hates it. Who asked you to do any of this? Your singing, your prayers, your greetings, they're all worthless. And you want to know why? I suspect if I said that, you'd be a little offended. I, I think you'd want to know why, but you wouldn't be in a, a mood to agree with me once you heard why. This was Isaiah's message. So before we talk about the why, let's unpack the message a little bit to make sure we hear it, and then let's look at the why, and that part will be quick. The why will be quick. It's not real complicated. And then we'll look at what this has to do with us. Today is really going to be a contemplation, a meditation. I hope you'll come again next week, because next week we're going to talk a little bit about how and what we do with this. But today, Isaiah begins by offending them. Clearly, he didn't take the how to win friends and influence people course. Literally speaking for God, he says, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were the cities that were so wicked, they had become a proverb by the time of Isaiah. Calling you sons of Isis is mild by comparison. But when he lays out his case, it's so extreme and so unlikely in their thinking, I imagine they would have been confused at first. You're bringing lots and lots of sacrifices to my house, God says. What does that mean to me? And this has got to be like one of those times when your dad said to you, why are you such an idiot? He didn't expect an answer. It wasn't really a question. Look at the next verse, verse 12, 13. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, when you come before me, and let's pay attention to this question, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Honestly, it seems to me like they would have had a legitimate answer to that question, right? They've got to be thinking, wait, isn't this what religion is all about? Aren't we supposed to do these religious things? Who asked this of us? You did. In fact, you set up the sacrificial system from the beginning to show us that our dependence on you and, and our own sin. In Exodus 34.20, you told us, don't come before me empty-handed. You clearly meant bring a sacrifice with you. This was all your idea. What are you talking about? Who asked this of us? Of course, you don't answer God that way. You try not to even think that way, but we do. Look, one of the most important trends religious trends in America today is the move toward more and more people. You may have read this. More and more people being what researchers call unaffiliated. This means that the researchee doesn't connect with any specific religious group. Not just that they don't attend, but they have no sense of being connected to any religious group. In 2007, 16% of Americans claim to be unaffiliated. That is a strikingly high number. But by 2014, that number was 23%. That's an incredible increase in disassociation in a relatively short period of time. 
It doesn't mean that we're less religious, really. There's still over 90% of us who claim to believe in God, and we think we know what believing in God means. Eight out of ten of us believe in angels. One in five Americans have experienced a ghost. One in seven Americans have consulted a psychic. Plus, four in ten of us believe a house can be haunted. Three out of four of us believe in some kind of paranormal activity, and we believe that it's related to the spiritual world. These are all experiences that we Americans categorize as religious. Stats like that have led one religious scholar, a guy named Jeffrey Kripal, to declare Americans are obsessed with the supernatural. We are deeply religious, and we think we know what religion is. Now, if you're tracking with me, you may be thinking, well, some of that is a little bit hogwashy. God clearly denounces going to psychics, and the Bible never mentions, nor has Christianity ever supported in its teaching, house hauntings. So we're in the clear. That must be the kind of stuff that Isaiah is railing about. Weird, out there, religious thoughts and practices and beliefs, right? But these are not the kinds of things that Isaiah is addressing. This is not the why of Isaiah's tongue lashing. Isaiah is addressing people who were supposedly doing the right spiritual stuff and supposedly believing the right spiritual things. He doesn't denounce them for visiting psychics or for disassociating themselves from their religious practices or their festivals. Far from it. Stop bringing meaningless offerings, God says in verse 13. Meaningless. That's harsh. Your incense is detestable to me. Detestable. Incense here refers not to the burning fragrances near the most holy place in the temple, and they would have been ubiquitously, regular, often, all the time, burning. But this incense refers to the smell of the burning of the sacrifices in the main part of the temple. In other words, the smell of your main act of worship, the sacrifices that you are bringing out of your own fields and into my temple, the sacrifices that I required of you, the sacrifices that you feel like are real and sincere acts of worship for you, they are detestable to me. Now, it's certainly true that there are times for all of us when we don't feel like praying. We don't feel like connecting to God. If you're an outsider to faith here, we're glad you're here. You need to know that those of us who are on the inside are not always confident and sure. You probably know that, but we need to admit it. We don't always feel religious. We don't always feel close to God. But when we do, when we do feel religious, when we do feel close to God, we don't expect in those times that God is thinking that our religion is detestable and meaningless. Then in the rest of verses 13 and 14, he catalogs all of the various occasions for worship and their religious celebrations, the whole gamut. And his summary analysis is this. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of carrying them. What is going on? And the final straw comes in verse 15. This is the high point of the confusion, or at least it would have been for me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, 
I will hide my eyes from you, even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. You may have heard the story of the two guys who were walking through a game park and they, they stumbled across a lion that hadn't eaten in days. The lion started chasing the two men. They ran as fast as they could, but one of the guys started getting really tired and he decided he needed to pray, so he yelled out to God, Lord, please turn this lion into a Christian. And then in his amazement, when he turned around and looked, he saw the lion that had been chasing him was on his knees with his paws together. He was happy to see that his prayer had been answered. He turned around and headed back toward the lion. When he got close enough to hear what he was saying, he heard the lion end his prayer. Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. But here, through Isaiah, God is not rebuking our stupid prayers. He's not talking about our immoral prayers. He's not talking about the dark night of the soul experience when someone, while desperately seeking for God, goes for a time without sensing him. Christians over the centuries have acknowledged that there are such times for all of us. But that's not what this is. God isn't silent. He's communicating loud and clear. He's saying flat out, he will not listen to their prayers. He will not answer, even if they pray repeatedly. Evidently, God doesn't always answer prayer. So why? What's going on? Well, finally, in verse 16, he answers. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Listen how verb-heavy this is, how action-heavy this is. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Here's the summary. I've had enough of your religion. It's meaningless and detestable when it's divorced from a life of justice and mercy. There is a total lack of integrity in your lives, God is saying. You bring sacrifices. You fill my house with sacrifices. You participate in all of the religious ceremonies, but you use imbalanced scales. You defraud the poor. It's all about profit for you. The lowly, The poor, the disenfranchised, you completely ignore them. Worse than that. Whenever they speak up, you ridicule them. When they protest in downtown Jerusalem, you offer scorn. You yell at them and wonder why they always have to be victims. You even yell at Jerusalem Central News for covering the event. I really believe this needs to be a warning for all of us. Whenever my kids acted up when they were young, I wanted some device that Jordan never did, but the other boys. I, I wanted some device that would allow me to bring some heightened level of awareness without always having to yell. So occasionally I would say to one of our boys, this is a big one, buddy. And when I said that, I, I wanted them to know that mom and I were really serious about what's happening right now. This is a big one, Gateway. Look, let's get personal. If you lean left politically and you love being angry at your right-leaning Christian friends, you wonder how they could imagine making a single social issue like abortion, for instance, so important in their voting and and forget about the more important matter of taking care of the poor. And I I saw a a Facebook post this week on, on my feed with several likes 
It was an article saying exactly that, you know, yelling at Christians for voting pro-life and forgetting about the more important matter of voting for the cause of the poor. And, and you feel so proud of your vote to protect entitlement programs designed to support the least fortunate in our society. Be very careful. God might be saying to you, your singing and your prayers and your attendance at religious services, even your vote for matters that concern the poor, they're meaningless. They're detestable to me. Who asked this of you? Well, you did, Lord. I'm practicing religion the way you told me to practice it, and I'm voting for those causes because Jesus would vote for those causes. No. Jesus would care for the poor himself. He would get his own hands dirty. He would open up his home. He would give money and energy and time, not to the Jerusalem Betterment of Society Bureau. No, he would give his money and time and energy to actual poor people that he met on the street. He would find a way to meet their needs himself. Your life, your actions do not match your convictions. To those of you who lean right politically and who love being angry at your left-leaning Christian friends, actually, you don't have any left-leaning Christian friends, you are so tired of the latest cause du jour, tired of the endless stream of victims who feel ostracized or put upon, but they don't want to work like you've done to make their own lives better. And you're sure you're right. Take abortion. What could be more important? God is the author of life after all. Pretty simple. Anybody who practices abortion commits murder. And there are several other issues about which you cannot and you will not compromise. God doesn't compromise truth. Be careful. God might be saying to you, who asked this of you? Who asked you to vote pro-life? To write Facebook posts about the sanctity of life and, and to like videos showing the farcical hypocrisy of Planned Parenthood? Who asked you? Well, you did, Lord. You're the author of life. No. Not if you don't care for the women actually involved. Some of whom are so desperate that they're convinced they have no other choice, no way out. Will you give them a way out? And what about my orphans all over the world? What about caring for them, finding them a home, opening up your home? Listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you. Be warned, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, not just your cattle and herds, not, not just your vegetables, your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, Jesus denounces them because they were fiercely concerned about their own personal morality, but they neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I learned a long time ago, some of you have learned this lesson as well, that it was very possible to win an argument with my wife Diane and still lose. 
I had to learn the very valuable lesson that my relationship with her is always more important than any point I think I need to make. In fact, my relationship is more important than all the points I think I need to make. Is it possible that we are winning the discussion with ourselves about our rightness, but losing our integrity and the realness of our connection to God? Let me settle this in a larger context. We have grown convinced at Gateway that there are a series of habits, a series of themes, factors in our life, which, if practiced, will build a consistently closer connection to God. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not complicated. And we've outlined those disciplines, those, those practices, those themes in our lives. We've made those our church covenant here at Gateway, the thing that we agree to with one another, what we're going to carry across the street into that new building, what we try to inculcate in people when they come in here. Because we're convinced that if we can really encourage these things in one another, we really will be doing exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians when he said to them, look, we're just trying to present everyone complete in Christ. So we have said that those habits are seven of them. We've said that those habits are to use resources with wisdom and purpose, to use our stuff for God, and to think about it and do it intentionally, not let our stuff use us, to practice creative devotion, to find a way in our lives to connect with Him, an actual practice. It's got to involve prayer, and it's got to involve looking at His Word. And then investing in community because it doesn't just happen. We all know we need community, but it doesn't just happen. You have to invest, investing in it. And then nourishing others. It's not about us, nourishing others, but out of our personal wholeness. We like getting well at Gateway. And often when we have our people tell stories up here, and every few weeks I have someone come up and tell their story. Often when we have people tell their stories up here, we pick the wackiest people we can think of. Jan Zacharias even came up a few weeks ago and told his story here. That's how wacky we let people be. Congratulations, Jan and Marianne, who got married yesterday. We also say that we need to discipline ourselves. We need to make it a theme in our lives. We need to think about uplifting God's character. So God's character on a movie projector displayed on our lives. The scripture talks about holiness and simplicity. And we work toward those things in our lives, in our small groups. And then telling others about Christ. I skipped one. The important habit of opening our lives to people in need. We have to treat this like a discipline. This opening our lives to people in need has to become something that we actually pursue. Why? Because we live in an area that social demographers call a lifestyle enclave. We are in one of the wealthiest counties in America. We don't live in gated communities, or most of us don't, some of you do. But we live in an area where we have priced out those who are not like us. We're in a lifestyle enclave. So opening our lives to people in need has to be an activity. It has to be something that we think about and pursue. I'm going to talk again more next week about the how. A quick note. This is one of the reasons why Diane and I 
have gone on short-term mission trips every few years since we've lived in Northern Virginia. Weeks before we go, it never feels like oh, we have the time or the money. But we're always glad we did. Because the lens changes. The perspective shifts. And we have regularly talked to our children when they were growing up, reminding them that this is not what the rest of the world is really like. In fact, to pursue that further, for every one of our boys when they were 13, and I was one of you, I think it might have been Graham, it didn't happen until he was 14, but for every one of our children when they were 13 or 14, we took them on a short-term mission trip with us to give them that same lens adjustment. And this is why I work really hard. I honestly do, and I know many of you do as well. I work really hard at listening, listening, not arguing, listening to political viewpoints that oppose my own. It, it keeps me open to what's outside of myself, and it does the same for many of you. We have to be intentional about this. Opening our lives to people in need is not a passive activity for us because we're not constantly passing need. We've insulated and isolated our lives from that. First of all, it's not just a passive activity because God requires it. God requires it. I want to read verse 23 of the same chapter. Uh, your rulers are rebels. They're companions of thieves. They love bribes. They chase after gifts. And here's his defense of that. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless or the widow's case does not come before them. It's not just that they're mistreating widows and orphans. He's saying they're rebels. They hang out with thieves. They cheat people because they don't actively defend those who don't have someone to defend them. This isn't us just watching television. Oh, I feel so sorry for those kids. This is us actively defending those children, pleading their cause, giving our time and our money. He requires that our lives are, are radically open to people in need, but also we have to actively pursue this because we need it. We need this. We need our hearts to be expanded by the needs of others. God has so blessed us that we would be a blessing to others. God has so blessed us so that we would be a blessing to others. God has blessed us so that we would be a blessing to others. And when we block the passage of his blessing through us, we inhibit his capacity to bless us more. Over the years, I have found Gateway, so thank you, Gateway, I have found Gateway to be an incredibly generous group of people. This little church has responded incredibly generously and warmly many times over the years to need. Many of you may not need to hear the full force of Isaiah's rebuke this morning, but we all need the reminder. Our lives are so busy, we have to be regularly reminded that there's more that we need to be expanding our hearts, extending ourselves toward those in need. And of course, there are some of you who need the flat-out rebuke. So I pray, honestly, that you hear it. Your hands are full of blood. The blood of all your sacrifices. The blood of the poor and the widow and the orphan. It's on your hands. 
Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we've heard you, and I pray that we would listen. I pray, God, that our hearts would engage your cause. Father, I pray that through our lives and our actions, through our money, through our time, that you would let justice roll down. We pray, Father, that you would be the solution. Oh, Lord, we confess this morning that we have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you would have mercy on us and forgive us. That you would make us instruments of your justice and your mercy. Lord, we pray that your love would be multiplied through our lives, that literally our personalities and our resources would be a multiplier of your love, that others would experience you because they've been near us. And we, this morning, Father, we make our lives an offering to you. We ask that you would accept it as a pleasing sacrifice, that the aroma, <laughs> that the aroma of our lives would not be detestable, but it would be a sweet fragrance to you. I thank you so much for the generosity that you have invested in this small body of believers. And I pray, Lord, that as you expand us, we would stay tight to that, that we would stay committed to profound, gener sacrificial generosity. Honestly, God, we acknowledge this morning, it's not a confession, we believe you've called us to it, but we acknowledge that we've invested a lot of resources in that building across the street. But we've done so, Lord, because we believe even in that, even there, you want that to be a blessing to others. You want to expand our capacity to be a blessing to our community. And I pray in Jesus' name this morning that you would facilitate that, that you would enable that, that you would equip us to do that. Then I pray beyond that, Lord. I pray especially for this extremely wealthy group of people that you would teach us and equip us and then show us where and how to invest our immense resources in those who are deeply and profoundly under-resourced. Lord, I pray specifically for those in our area who are trying to single parent. I pray you would help us to love them well, to be your hands and feet, that your love would be multiplied through us. And then, Father, I pray for our efforts to work around the world in third world countries with the poor, the widow, with the orphans, that you would multiply our work there as well, Father. I pray that you would increase the footprint of your love through us. Use us. We don't want this to just be word. We want to love in action. We want this to be real. We want this to hit the streets. And we pray that you would enable that.
Father, I thank you for this group, this actual group here. I don't believe any of us are here by accident. I pray, Lord, that we would receive what you have spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with us. Sing this last song. Your love is like radiant diamond bursting inside us. You cannot contain your love will. Surely come find us by blazing wildfire. Sing your name. Sing it out, Gary. God of mercy. God of mercy. I have surrendered to your desire. May this offering stretch across the sky. These hallelujahs be multiplied. God of mercy, love of mine, yeah, I have to raise. Offering switch across the sky, these hallelujahs be multiplied. Go in peace, Gateway. Have a great Sunday.